sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. Uh, all the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and uh, the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I uh, do hope that our listeners all enjoyed their holidays, whatever holidays you may have been celebrating. Yes, Happy New Year. And I want to thank Mrs. Carswell for single-handedly recording our last episode, our Christmas ghost story. My pleasure. I've uh, chosen to uh, start the year somewhat gently with an episode more geared toward uh, folklore than horror. I always feel like it's a balancing act keeping listeners happy, the horror versus the folklore, that is. Well, your other idea was pretty grisly. Doesn't mean I won't be doing it. I wonder how many episodes you've done without a head being chopped off, or someone being butchered or eaten. Maybe nine. It's something I have to live with. I don't want to dwell on it. In other news, uh, like many parts of the country, we were snowed under this last week. Uh, Actually snowed in, more or less. There's a long drive for Mr. Ridenauer's garage, and the driver couldn't get the car out, so I couldn't do shopping for a couple of days. And then we got more snow, so it was a little hit or miss on meals. It wasn't the end of the world. We have a walk-in pantry and three huge chest freezers. Yes, but those freezers are full of things... I don't even recognize large, strange shapes. I know you said the taxidermy was marked, but I can't always tell if it's that or venison or what. There's something with horns or sawed-off horns. Stumps, maybe? I don't know. We should probably throw that out. It's old. Well, it's huge. I don't know that I can even get it out and up the stairs, much less just... Put it out on the curb for the trash service. You can't just put something with horns out on the curb for the trash without questions. I thought you said the horns were sawed off. Still. Well, uh, we should probably start the show. Uh, Listeners don't need to hear our housekeeping issues. Well, you wanted to talk about the snow. I thought you liked the snow. It was pretty, but I just didn't expect it to lead to all these... Issues. Did you measure the icicles yet? No. You're so obsessed with those icicles. Well, just before they break. I'm just not sure about reaching them through the window. You have the sticks I showed you. You don't even have to lean out the window, really. They reach. It's all set up. I've been doing it for years. Well, I'll get to it. I just didn't know it was such a priority. Well, it's... Just something I like to keep track of when they get long like that. Icicle deaths are much more common than most people realize. Yes, I saw your clippings. I'll measure them when it's light again. Well, that's fine. They don't fall at night when it's colder. 
I thought you wanted to start the show. I do, I do. Uh, so, I will. Episode 82, Myth and Magic of the Smith. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. I'll uh, have more on Patreon at the end of our show. Para nosotros, la temporalidad es algo que no existe, pero tú, tarde o temprano vas a morir, guerrero. You're listening to the voice of the devil, the titular devil from the 2017 film Erementari, the blacksmith and the devil. That first word simply means blacksmith in Basque, the language of the region where the story unfolds, and the language spoken throughout this Spanish-French co-production. Set in the mid-19th century, the story revolves around a blacksmith living on the outskirts of a village where rumors swirl of his evil deeds. Not entirely unfounded, it seems, as Within his smithy, he keeps a caged devil whom he intermittently torments. Other than that, I don't want to spoil the plot, as it's a film you really should see for yourself. The visual design's quite good, particularly that of the devil, who looks like something straight from a medieval fresco. And there are nicely authentic folkloric touches, such as the devil finding himself compelled to count chickpeas scattered on the floor. While screenwriters did overlay a number of more uh, cinematic plot lines, the film is supposedly based on, or at least inspired by, a uh, much simpler folktale, Pachi the Blacksmith, collected back in the 1960s by the uh, priest and Basque ethnographer Jose Miguel Barandiaran. His uh, blacksmith tale from the Basque region is only one of dozens, uh, perhaps uh, hundreds of variants of blacksmith and the devil tales found all the way from Russia to Appalachia, all of which involve a smith selling his soul to the devil or another supernatural figure in exchange for some reward, then somehow tricking the devil out of his prize. As an example of this category, we'll start with one about a quite well-known character, though uh, this may not be obvious until the end of the story. Our version comes from an 1896 volume, The Humor of Ireland, by David James O'Donohue. It's about a blacksmith by the name of Will. One day, as he was musing in his shop alone, there came to him a little old man, almost naked and trembling with cold. My good fellow, said he to Will, put on some coals and make a fire that I may get myself warmed. Will does so, also bringing the old man something to eat and inviting him to stay the night. In gratitude, he invites the blacksmith to make three wishes, which he will grant. 
Wells' uh, first wish concerns his hammer. I wish that any person who takes my sledge into their hand may never get free of it till I please to take it from them. Secondly, I have an armed chair, and I wish that any person sitting down on the same may never have power to rise until I please to take them off it. I likewise wish for the last, says Will, that whatever money or gold I happen to put into my purse, no person may have power to take it out again but myself. The wishes are granted, but the old man reprimands Will for not more piously wishing for heaven or salvation. Regretting his foolish choices, Will becomes despondent, and his business and family fall into distress. But all is not lost. One idle day, as he was walking along through the fields, he met the devil in the appearance of a gentleman, who told him that if he would go along with him at the end of seven years, he should have anything he desired during that time. Seems like a good deal to Will, and he accordingly thrives over the next years until the devil appears in his smithy to claim his soul. Will nonchalantly agrees, asking only that he might finish and deliver the piece on which he's been working. A few more strokes of the hammer, and he's done. Handing the tool to the devil, he sets up the door to deliver the piece. Soon realizing his hand has become fused with the hammer, the devil fumes about, searching for anyone who might help him detach it from his uh, hand. Eventually he finds Will, who agrees to remove the hammer if he's given seven more years of freedom. Well, you probably see how this will go. Seven years later, the devil is tricked to sit on the chair from which he may not rise. He's eventually freed by Will at the cost of seven more years, after which the devil once more appears. And this time, Will again obligingly agrees to go, asking only that the two of them might stop at a favorite pub on their way to hell. Always one to encourage drunkenness, the devil consents. But, says Will, I have no money, but I will tell you what you can do. You can change yourself into a piece of gold. I will put you in my purse. Which he obligingly does. But after realizing he's been tricked and after being subjected to further threats and torments from Will, the devil cries out from within the purse, I would rather be in hell than stay here, confined in this manner. And if you let me go, I will never trouble you again. Though he's saved his soul from hell, there now seems to be another problem, one with his purse. After Satan being in it, he found it empty ever after. By this unlucky accident, he was reduced to the most indigent state. And he eventually dies. Though he's barred from heaven for his dealings with the devil, he also finds himself denied entrance to hell, as the devils there have come to fear his wily ways. Sending him back to earth, Satan says, I'll give you a light in your hand to allure and deceive the weary traveler so that he may become a prey unto us. So, lighting a wisp, he gave it to Will, and he was conducted to Earth, where he wanders from that day to this, under the title 
of a will of a wisp. Wisp here being an archaic term for a bundle of hay or straw used as a torch. In other versions of the story, it's a burning coal in a hollowed out gourd that provides the light, something carried by a blacksmith named Jack, uh, Jack O'Lantern in this case. And all of this is to explain the flickering lights that appear over marshy places known in modern times as swamp gas. The earliest recorded blacksmith and devil tale is in Jean-Baptiste Basile's collection of Neapolitan fairy stories, The Tale of Tales, published in 1634. In the Grimm's Children and Household Tales, Grimm's Fairy Tales, there are two stories following a similar tricking the devil motif, uh, Brother Lustig and Gambling Hansel, though the protagonist is not a blacksmith in either of these. However, in footnotes to the latter story, the brothers provide brief sketches of nine more analogous stories, mostly from Germany, in which the protagonist is a blacksmith. Sometimes the wish-granting stranger may be St. Peter, as he seems to be actually in the uh, jack-o'-lantern, will-o'-the-wisp story, and the adversary to be tricked may be death rather than the devil. Um, rather than a coin in a purse, the devil may be tricked into making himself small and caught in a receptacle, a coal sack in one of the stories. Analogous to the chair that won't release its occupant is a fruit tree from which one can't climb down once one's ascended to get some tasty fruit. And the uh, smith sometimes ends up in heaven, persuading St. Peter to grant him admission by offering to shoe uh, St. George's horse. Or he may end up in heaven after being banned from hell after nailing demons' noses or ears to hell's gate. <laughs> Most of the blacksmiths in these tales tend to be roguish. England offers a uh, devil-combating smith who is actually quite saintly, namely St. Dunstan. This uh, 10th century abbot of Glastonbury who rose to the position of Archbishop of Canterbury along the way found time to become not only a master harpist but also a blacksmith and silversmith. As a favored advisor to the king, he inspired jealous courtiers to circulate rumors about his dabbling in the black arts, including tales that he possessed an enchanted harp that would play without being touched. But the most famous legend by far takes place in Dunstan's Smithy. Here it is from an 1877 edition of Transactions of the Royal Historical Society, an ethnographic survey. One evening, while he was at his forge, the devil thrust his head in at the window and began to tempt him with some very immoral proposals. St. Dunstan patiently allowed him to go on until the tongs were red hot in the fire, when, snatching them suddenly up, he seized with them the capacious nose of the devil, who roared so loud that the whole neighborhood rang with his bellowing. Oh. 
or in the words of a popular rhyme. St. Dunstan, as the story goes, once pulled the devil by the nose with red-hot tongs which made him roar that he was heard ten miles or more. In other tellings, it's made more explicit that the devil has taken on the form of a beautiful woman as he intrudes on the saint, and that Dunstan sees through the ruse when he spies a cloven hoof emerging from beneath the fiend's skirts. Sometimes, Dunstan is said to keep his hold on the devil's snout, refusing to release until he's extracted certain supernatural secrets of the forge. When released, the devil was said to have flown off to cool his burning nose in the waters of uh, Tunbridge Wells in Kent, which is said to account for uh, either a sulfurous flavor to the water or its uh, rusty reddish hue. An account from Mary Jane Tabor's 1904 book, The Cathedrals of England, provides a bit more on Dunstan's uh, devilish interactions. There is a continuation of this tale which relates that Dunstan then grabbed the devil by the leg and nailed a red-hot horseshoe onto the cloven hoof, and from that time forth, the devil has been debarred from entering any house properly protected by a horseshoe over the door. Should you be skeptical enough to require evidence supporting these tales, the very tongs used by the saint to grasp that diabolical snout can be found displayed in the convent of the Holy Child Jesus at Mayfield in Sussex, a town particularly associated with St. Dunstan. There is another saint with a purely symbolic, yet no less important, link to blacksmiths, St. Clement, the first century bishop of Rome who became Pope Clement I. Legend has it that he was banished by Emperor Trajan to slave away in his quarries, where the saint encountered slaves crying out for water. And led by the vision of a lamb to a particular spot, the saint struck the earth to release a gushing spring of cool water. The miracle not only quenched the thirst of his fellow slaves, but led to the conversion of many pagans of the region, something that angered authorities and led to Clement being martyred at sea, uh, tossed from a boat with an anchor tied round his neck. The anchor is not only important in the saint's iconography, but as an item that would necessarily have been crafted by a blacksmith, forms the unlikely basis for a peculiar devotion Clement receives from those uh, practicing this craft. British antiquarians of the 19th century record a variety of celebrations by iron workers on St. Clement's Day, which is uh, November 23rd. Uh, during these, one of their number would represent Old Clem, as he was called, uh, donning false whiskers, a mask, and a cloak to lead a procession through the streets, which would collect money for the evening's Clem feast. And the practice of clementine, as it was called, not limited to tradesmen, children or youths also might go door to door in some regions singing. We only come once a year, apples or pears or plum or cherry, or anything you've got to make us merry. At these clem feasts, toasts would be offered. The eldest blacksmith might begin calling out, Health to the jolly blacksmith! the best of all fellows, 
who works at his anvil while the boy blows the bellows. A tale in which St. Clement appears, related by an elderly Sussex blacksmith, in an 1886 edition of the Journal of the British Archaeological Association, explains how exactly the blacksmith was determined to be the best of all fellows, or in fact the king of all trades. It begins as the 9th century King Alfred, a contemporary of St. Clement, called together all the trades, seven in number, and declared his intention of making that tradesman king over all the trades who could best get on without the help of all the others for the longest period. He invites each to bring a specimen of his work to a banquet. The attendees are a tailor, baker, shoemaker, carpenter, butcher, mason, and, of course, blacksmith. Rather preemptively, it's decided that the uh, coat produced by the tailor was of such surpassing beauty of color and exquisite fashion that it entirely eclipsed the handicraft of all the others. Well, the blacksmith is quite angry over this choice and decides to shut up his forge, declaring that he would do no more work once the tailor was king. Now, it came to pass that King Alfred was the first to need the services of the blacksmith, his horse having cast a shoe, but he could gain no admittance. Then came one trade, then another. In fact, all the six, each having broken his tools. Attempts to get by without the blacksmith commenced with the king attempting to shoe his horse, but... The horse kicked the king. The tailor bruised his fingers. The fire would not burn, and everybody got into everybody's way. The butcher began to shove the baker. He shoved the shoemaker, who in turn shoved the carpenter. And the latter revenged himself by shoving the mason, who passed the compliment on to the tailor. And so on, like a medieval Three Stooges movie, until St. Clement walks in and directs a meaningful look at King Alfred, who, realizing the error of his ways, retracts his selection of the tailor and proclaims instead that the blacksmith is the true king of all trades. A particularly exciting feature of St. Clement's Day celebrations among the smiths would be something called the firing of the anvil, or anvil shooting, or anvil launching, a uh, spectacular stunt driven by a quantity of black powder poured into the hole on the anvil's surface. A fuse is rigged in a second anvil. The one to be launched is inverted atop the first, the fuse is lit, and the anvil sails at least several feet into the air. A side note, I noticed with some amusement that Wikipedia, on its anvil firing page, devotes a full subsection, a lengthy paragraph or more, to the shocking revelation that this practice may in fact be a bit dangerous. Finally, no old Clem feast would be complete without a rousing rendition of the song Twanky Dillo, a sort of anthem for those practicing the king of all trades. Here's a health to the jolly blacksmith, the finest of fellows, who works at the anvil while the boy blows the bellows, which makes his bright hammer 
To rise and to fall Is to old call and to young call And to old call of all Let's now move into the pagan world where we'll be working our way backward, beginning with the Smith from Germanic and Anglo-Saxon mythology. In uh, English lore, he's known as Wayland the Smith, but there is usually only mentioned in passing, such as uh, references in Beowulf, attributing to him the creation of certain pieces of weaponry or armor. He's more prominently featured in the Old Norse lay or poem of Völund, uh, part of the Poetic Edda, collection of legends set down in the 13th century, but presumably uh, already in oral circulation a few centuries earlier. Two uh, slightly different backgrounds are provided for Voland within the uh, Poetic Edda. In both, he is deserted by his wife, who's either a swan maiden or a Valkyrie, who leaves behind her ring. The story gets more interesting when, during his sleep, Völund is abducted by a wicked Swedish king, King Nethat, who not only compels him to serve as his personal blacksmith, but also has stolen Völund's sword and the ring worn by his wife. The revenge Völund takes upon the king and his family is uh, thorough, to say the least. He not only kills Nathoth's sons, but makes goblets of their skulls and transforms their teeth and eyes into jewelry, all of which he sends to the king as gifts. Not satisfied with that, he also takes advantage of Nathoth's daughter, who comes to Volan's forge with an item in need of repair. After getting her drunk with strong beer, he impregnates her, then, just to rub salt in the wound, presents himself at Nathoth's hall to brag about his use of the king's daughter, murder of his sons, and ghoulish use of their remains. And then, before he can be seized by the king's guard, he ascends beyond their reach on wings he has crafted in his forge, laughing while the king weeps. As I said, his revenge is... Thorough. Verland, or in this case Wayland, is remembered in Oxfordshire in uh, the name given a Neolithic long barrow or stone chamber tomb, that is, Wayland's Smithy, part of the local cluster of prehistoric sites, including the uh, nearby Uffington White Horse, that uh, image of an immense horse inscribed over a nearby hill. Probably named by the Saxons thousands of years after its use as a tomb, Wayland's smithy itself is the subject of some interesting folklore. Described in a 1738 letter written by the Oxford antiquarian Francis Wise to a Dr. Mead. At this place lived formerly an invisible smith, and if a traveler's horse had lost a shoe upon the road, he had no more than to bring the horse to the place with a piece of money, and leaving both there for some little time. He might come again and find the money gone, but the horse knew shod. Contemporary caretakers of Wayland Smithy still find coins wedged into the crevices of the stones. Mount Etna is at it again, spewing lava and sending ash into the sky above Sicily. 
the Sicilian volcano was particularly active in 2021, causing the closure of local airports and building up its cone with an additional 100 feet of solidified lava, all duly reported in this Inside Edition segment, but the cause of this uptick somehow went without comment. Students of classical mythology, of course, will realize this volcanic activity is an indicator that the blacksmith god Vulcan, or Hephaestus, is at work in his forge. For Inside Edition Digital, I'm Matt Romantzubana. The Greek Hephaestus is virtually equivalent with the Roman Vulcan, but I'll focus here on the former for simplicity. Not only was he the god of metalworking and fire, but of other crafts, including that of sculptors, carpenters, and other artisans. He was sometimes said to be assisted in his smithy by the Cyclops, who were specifically credited with crafting the thunderbolts hurled by Zeus. Hephaestus was said to also have a smithy on Olympus, as well as a marvelous palace there, which is fitting as his parents were, particularly Olympian, uh, that is, Zeus and Hera. He did not, however, inherit Olympian good looks and was said to be ugly, the only Greek deity thus characterized. Homer provides a good image of the physically imperfect god as his forge in the Iliad. Hephaestus took the huge bellows off from the block of the anvil limping, and yet his shrunken legs moved lightly beneath him. He set the bellows away from the fire and gathered and put away all the tools with which he worked in a silver strongbox. Then, with a sponge, he wiped clean his forehead and both hands and his massive neck and hairy chest. His lameness figured into his ejection from Olympus as a child. Some narratives describe Hera so horrified at seeing the ugly child she has birthed that she casts him from Olympus with a fall causing his lameness. In other versions, his lameness is just part of the physical imperfections he was born with. Another tale has Zeus casting him from Olympus when Hephaestus tries to protect his mother from unwanted advances by his father. He's often said to be cast into the sea where he's raised by sea nymphs, eventually discovering on the beach the embers of a fisherman's campfire, which uh, leads to his experiments with fire, smelting ore, and working metals. With the uh, fruits of his uh, smithing skills, he earns his way back into the world of the Olympians, though not before extracting some revenge on his mother for her rejection. Pausanias, in his description of Greece, relates this story, which seems to be echoed in later tales like that of Will-o'-the-Wisp. In revenge, he sent as a gift a golden chair with invisible fetters. When Hera sat down, she was held fast. Hephaestus is credited with creating most all the weaponry or armor employed by the deities, jewelry, chariots, furnishings, cult statues, entire temples, and the chains used to restrain Prometheus and even the eagle which torments him, uh, at least in one second century account. As with uh, Roger Bacon's brazen head or uh, Virgil's automata discussed in uh, previous episodes, 
Stories like that of the eagle made by Hephaestus represent the technology of the forge as akin to magic. Hephaestus is also credited with creating fire-breathing horses to pull a king's chariot, palace watchdogs, animate bulls, and the bronze giant Talos encountered by the Argonauts. He also crafts for himself all but human assistants described in the Iliad. These are golden and in appearance like living young women. There is intelligence in their hearts, and there is speech in them and strength. And from the immortal gods, they have learned how to do things. These stirred nimbly in support of their master. He's even credited with creating actual human life, that of Pandora, the first mortal female molded by Hephaestus from clay at the command of Zeus. Another metalworker, the biblical father of metalworking, whose story also intertwines with mankind's beginnings, is the figure of Tubal Cain from the book of Genesis, in which he is described as the first forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. He is a descendant and namesake of Cain, child of Adam and Eve and brother of Abel, whom Cain murders. A uh, tradition beginning with the medieval rabbinical scholar Rashi gives the literal meaning of Tubal Cain as Cain's spices, interpreted as one who seasoned and improved the work of Cain. A uh, rather innocuous way of saying, in a sense, one who has perfected the art of killing. While uh, Cain kills his brother with a stone, his descendant, Tubal Cain, hammers out sharpened blades and spearheads that provide greater power over life and death. A uh, little context might be needed from the story of Cain and Abel. A dichotomy is traditionally drawn between the two proto-brothers with Abel representing a pastoral life, and Cain associated with farming, settlements, civilization, and all the gifts and ills civilization brings. Uh, increasingly the latter, the ills, that is, in the days before God sent the flood to cleanse the earth. And uh, Noah, by the way, is the brother of Tubal Cain. The very strange and not terribly successful Darren Aronofsky film of 2014 Noah, which uh, reimagines the biblical story in a sort of sci-fi universe, makes use of the figure of Tubal Cain as Noah's arch nemesis, a warlord whose uh, forge cranks out not only bladed weapons and armor, but primitive futuristic firearms with which his men attempt to commandeer the ark. He's uh, pretty much everything bad Aronofsky could imagine a one-man military-industrial complex, a meat-eater, and even, when pressed, a cannibal. The film Noah also happens to include depictions of the Watchers, the fallen angels who receive a passing reference in the Bible, but who figure much more prominently in the apocryphal book of Enoch. I mention this text as it seems to project aspects of the Bible's Tubal Cain unto a different character, 
a fallen angel by the name of Azazel, the leader of the Watchers. Here, the evil role attributed to Tubal-Cain is made explicit as Azazel is portrayed as a sort of Luciferian blacksmith. Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates, and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them, and bracelets and ornaments, and the beautifying of the islands, and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. The flood sent to purge the earth of this evil also figures into the mythology of Freemasonry and the role assigned the figure of Tubal-Cain in its rituals. As I'm sure some listeners know, much of Freemasonry revolves around the symbolism of Solomon's temple. In particular, the third degree initiation of members to the status of Master Mason enacts an allegorical drama involving a character named Hiram Abiff, a builder of Solomon's temple. Tubal Cain, for Masons, represents a sort of prefiguring of Hiram Abiff. Abiff is said to have constructed two particular pillars that stood alone in the temple's forecourt, constructed not of stone, but of bronze or brass or copper, and not to be understood as supporting members for the architecture, but as fulfilling some magical or symbolic function. These pillars even have names, Boaz and Jacob. Tubal Cain, likewise, is said to have constructed two symbolic pillars in a text by the first century Jewish historian Josephus and in later medieval legends. Like Boaz and Jachin in Solomon's temple, the pillars crafted by Tubal Cain encoded a symbolic message. In this case, they're supposed to be inscribed with all of mankind's knowledge and constructed of materials that will not perish in flood or fire. Uh, the flood, Noah being the uh, immediate concern in Tubal Cain's day. As a sort of master who transmits the supreme knowledge of all things, Tubal Cain is given as a password to the initiate of the Masonic Third Degree, and also is a name given the secret handshake accompanying the pronouncement of this password. There is a related bit of Masonic iconography uh, used on lapel pins and the like as a uh, secret nod to fellow members, an odd sort of hieroglyph representing two balls flanking a cane. Two ball cane as a phrase and image also carries a sort of a smirky, naughty inside joke for Masons. I don't think I need to explain. And there is another secret society inspired by Freemasonry, which likewise references Tubal Cain, one previously mentioned in our Toad Magic episode. Um, in that show, I refer to its members as Toad Men, thanks to the use of toad bones in their initiation rituals, but uh, members are perhaps more commonly called horse witches, or horse whisperers, or said to be members of the Society of Horsemen, or of the horseman's word, uh, the latter being a 
version of Freemasonry's lost word, which somehow encodes supreme wisdom for the Mason. In this society, members are said to acquire a supernatural ability to control horses, making the horsemen respected figures in rural Scotland and England, at least in East Anglia. Uh, the order first appeared in the 1870s and began to fade from existence by the 1930s, but is said to still survive on Orkney. Modeled upon the rites and beliefs of Freemasonry, members assign similar import to Tubal Cain, or sometimes his ancestor Cain, depending on the region. Not only is he the order's symbolic founder, but his uh, work as a blacksmith likely resonated with members, many of whom would have necessarily worked as farriers, that is, uh, blacksmiths specializing in shoeing horses. The uh, horseman's reverence for the figure is embodied in these words spoken at their secret gatherings. Here's to the horse with the four white feet, the chestnut tail and mane, a star on his face and a spot on his breast, and his master's name was Tubal Cain. Tubal Cain was a man of might in the days when earth was young. And now to the 1960s. Supposedly, one of these secret horse witches was the father of Roy Bowers, an Englishman who, under the adopted name Robert Cochran, in 1966 founded the Clan of Tubal Cain, a coven and spiritual path intended to rival the Gardnerian witchcraft, largely defining the neo-pagan world of the 1960s. I should also point out that Cochrane himself worked for some time in the London Transport Foundry as a blacksmith. Now, there's a certain irony to the story of Cochrane and his clan of Tubal Cain, so I'll be closing with this topic since uh, bitter irony has become the comfortingly familiar note on which we tend to end these shows. Uh, in any case, our uh, blacksmith witch, like many of his colleagues in the neo-pagan movement, made claims about being a hereditary witch, and though it's possible his father was indeed a horse witch, uh, historians of witchcraft, including the great Ronald Hutton, dispute the claim that he descended from witches executed centuries ago. More likely, he picked up his interests while living the bohemian lifestyle of an art student. He was still in his early 20s when he founded the clan of Tubal Cain, soliciting members through an ad placed in the Manchester Guardian. In it, he particularly welcomed aficionados of Robert Graves' The White Goddess, an uh, idiosyncratic survey of uh, mythological poetry and practices inspired by James Fraser's The Golden Bough. Cochrane himself never wrote a book defining his path, Rather than uh, systematic descriptions, he preferred truths conveyed through riddles, poetry, and folk songs, seeing this as a continuation of Druidic tradition, a fascination he shared with Graves. He likened his pursuits to that of the village witch, the cunning people, or the horse-charming tradition of his father. With the uh, death of Gerald Gardner in 1964, the future of Wicca had become somewhat fluid, and Cochrane was particularly eager to take a lead in the movement, disparaging Gardner's leadership in rather harsh terms that 
tarnish his reputation and going as far as to speak of a Knight of the Long Knives of the Gardnerians. Referencing Hitler's murderous purge of the disloyal in 1934. He'd also raised eyebrows with his reckless use of psychedelics within the coven, supposedly administering an overdose of belladonna to a couple during a hand-fasting ceremony. Nor did it help that he'd begun openly cheating on his wife with women of the coven, a situation that led to his spouse's departure and divorce. During those troubled times, Cochrane sought out a psychiatrist who prescribed the tranquilizer Librium, but the pills were never used to treat anxiety. Instead, they were hoarded, set aside, or a suicide on June 23, 1966, Midsummer Eve. And uh, here's where we might find that bitter irony. There's still debate on how this event is to be interpreted. Cochrane had been distressed over the divorce and previously experienced bouts of depression during which he talked of suicide. But there may have been another dimension to all this. During the early summer of that year, he'd mentioned to certain members of the coven an intent to take his life on Midsummer, hinting at some magical significance to the act. It remains unclear how explicit he was in this, but there was and is a belief within his community that the suicide was a ritual act reenacting the rite of the divine king described in Fraser's Golden Bough. That is the self-sacrifice of a ruler who willingly goes to his death in order to bring fertility to his land. Or in uh, Cochrane's case, perhaps to ensure the fruitful flowering of his movement. Whatever ritual intent may or may not have been present, it was not mentioned in the brief note Cochrane addressed to the coroner, one in which he dryly noted that he wished to take his own life while of sound mind. The note also described the drugs in which he overdosed and the specific effect for which they were intended. Belladonna and Hellebore, ingredients associated with the witch's flying ointment, were mentioned. Though midsummer was the appropriate date for the death ritual of the Divine King, in fact, when police broke into Cochrane's apartment a day later, they found the witch slumped in a sleeping bag on his sofa still alive, but in a coma. Cochrane was brought to the hospital where he lingered in the state for some time, finally dying nine days after the date appointed for the rite. With uh, no second chance to perform the ritual correctly, this struck me as a particularly tragic note, but uh, perhaps I simply misunderstand the true nature of the sacrifice. Author Shani Oates, a prominent contemporary follower of Cochrane, has a different view. For her, the nine days the witch spent hovering between life and death link Cochrane with the Norse god Odin, who hung in self-sacrifice nine days on the world tree Yggdrasil in a quest to understand the wisdom of the runes. In an essay on Cochrane's death and those nine days, she writes, My initial impressions are that this is of immense significance to those who still read celestial and stellar omens. Admittedly, something she could read much better than I. <laughs> 
You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. Cain was a man of might in the days when Earth was young. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. We haven't gotten one of those for a bit, and they do really help raise our visibility. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each of these shows. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, given the bone and sickle soundscape treatment, of course. Other rewards include access to the Patreon blog, which posts extra tidbits that almost made it into our episodes, downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the bone and sickle candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits. I should note that when you sign up for all the digital rewards, the bonus episodes, soundscape scripts, and blog posts, new patrons get immediate access to the entire back catalog all the way back to 2018. I'd like to thank our recent signups who are now enjoying those rewards. Those kind souls include Deborah Hibbert, Michael Tramoff, Boschumhaus, Walter Klatt, Andrew Reeves, Rowan Gray, who I think is a former patron returning, and uh, Jeb Card. Also, thanks to Styx and Serene, Serena for uh, upping their pledges. And thank you to Julia Perch, who sent a little hello message telling me a bit about herself, something I've been encouraging with new signups. Uh, apparently, our show has rekindled an old interest in reading about folklore and is something she enjoys while drawing, sewing, or crafting. I've been encouraging new signups to do this, but it's entirely optional, of course. It's always nice when supporters share a bit about their interests to provide me an idea of the audience they're making these shows for. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>